Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank everybody that's been sharing the show with your friends and following us on Spotify or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or leaving comments. Uh, we really appreciate it and it helps us keep this whole thing going. I want to give a shout out to OsirisPod.com. They uh, help me make this show and they produce a lot of other great content, which you can check out at OsirisPod.com. I'm so excited about today's show because I got to speak with one of my musical heroes, Mr. Branford Marsalis, one of the greatest saxophonists of our time. And the guy has collaborated with pretty much everybody. I mean, from Sting to all the greats in the jazz community to the Grateful Dead and uh, Spike Lee. He's scored films. He's made so many albums and his quartet is one of the greatest jazz bands I've ever seen in my life. He came from a royal family of music. Ellis, his father, was a legendary pianist and also a professor. His mom, Dolores, was a jazz singer and teacher. And his two brothers, also incredible jazz musicians, Delfeo on the trombone and Wynton Marsalis, known as one of the great trumpeters of our time. Branford came out in the 80s and 90s as one of the young lions of jazz, but soon was known for his ability to play in pretty much any genre. He led the Tonight Show band for many years, and in recent times um, has delved into the world of classical music. I'm very excited to get into this conversation, uh, but before we do, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's an incredible band leader, a producer, an arranger, a film composer, and one of the greatest saxophonists of our time. I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Mr. Branford Marsalis. Being a touring musician for, shit, what, 30, 40, 30 years, solid. Um, 40. 40. What's it been like being home for this long? It's been great. I miss I miss working. I miss having an income, but right. You know, my wife works. We good. You know what I mean? She's the breadwinner. It's kind of cool. That's kind of nice. I know I've been kind of. I almost feel guilty at how much I've been enjoying it because you know, for twenty something years, I was on the road, and you know, my I just started a family. We have a young child, and my wife and I Congrats. get to be around for a lot of these things, and um. You know, it's it's a it's been an interesting time because I think also slowing down has helped me creatively as well. Kind of figuring out a lot of the thing because you know a lot a lot as a mus- at least myself as a musician a lot of times I'm thinking about the next thing I want to tackle and the next thing I want to conquer, and it's hard to always take on a massive new. Uh, even if it, whether it's a new skill or building on your a skill that you already have, like I know you've delved into classical music in the past decade or two, and I was curious, like what what inspired that, and what was it like to kind of I wouldn't I mean I, I guess I wouldn't say starting over, but it's starting something new, brand new. Oh, it, it, it's starting over, right? That yeah. that's starting over. Uh, it was this idea. I was listening to a to a, a, a jazz guy, a famous, you know, Dexter Gordon. Yeah. And Dexter was killing, you know. Dexter in the 40s, the 50s, killing. He went to Europe. He came back. And then he did this movie, Round Midnight. Oh, yeah. Got Academy Award yeah, nomination. Yeah, I know that It was one, awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was great. Yeah. 
you know, and uh, but you could hear the playing slipping. You could hear it or I could hear it. A guy, a person who likes jazz may not have heard it, but like this, you spend as much time studying this shit as I have and listening. You can hear it. I think we kind of bought into the idea of it as being just a natural order of things. And then when I was living in New York, you know, for 22 years, I would turn on uh, the classical station, WQXR. Right. And I heard this piano and the shit was killing, bro. I mean, just like, damn, so I'm going to hang in the car. I, I want to know who this is. Right. And it was Arthur Rubenstein on kind of like his 90th birthday performance. Wow. And I went, damn, there ain't no drop off to that. Right. So then I started just thinking about it, you know, like not the, the conclusion wasn't, oh, I got to go play classical music, but why is one one way and one the other way? And I started thinking that style of music, you have to have style and a certain level of substance. Right, right. Whereas after a while, you've been doing this for 20, 30 years. You have a style. You can just use your style. You just get away with it. You can just have your style <laughs> and it's your thing. Yeah. Those two or three things you do that nobody else does yeah, and yeah. people will pay to come see you. If they were coming to hear you, they'd notice. That's just kind of repetitive, but they're coming to see you yeah. and they come to see you do your thing. They don't really allow that, you know, because, you know, in, in, in like whatever it is, you play the blues, you play jazz. I mean, once you learn how to play it, what the hell are you practicing it for? You already know how to do it. Right. So what do you do? You double and triple down on things you already know. So this idea was not to start playing classical performances. That was never, that wasn't even in my comprehension right I, st I still don't know how that happened but it was to take lessons i was going to start taking lessons and which was literally like well what my teacher said was when he saw me play he's a his name's harvey patel he lives in la now he says man you're amazing okay why he goes it's amazing you can play anything with all the, the fucked up shit you have going on up there wow okay it's amazing. And I said, well, man, that's why I'm here. He says, great, let's get to work. You got a pen and a pen, you know, you got a pencil and paper. I'm like, what? He said, well, I mean, go to the corner store, get a pencil and paper. I was in Austin. He was teaching in Austin, Texas at the time. Right. He's teaching at UT. Okay. And uh, school was out. Yeah. So I had his undivided attention. He's like, go to the, go to the uh, drugstore and get a pad and a pencil. And we're starting from the beginning. So right. it was literally starting over. Yeah. And he was talking about airstream and column and embouchure and position, things that you go to a jazz school, they don't talk about any of this shit. None right. of it, you know? Right. So we were doing six hour days for six days. And I said, I can't wait to get home to shit. When I finally got home, I actually like slept for two days. My brain was so tired. And I called him. I said, Well, I'm ready to go, man. How long do you think it's going to take me to get this? He says, Oh, about two years if you're lucky. For me, it was more like four. Wow. Maybe even five. So, yeah, it was like starting over as far as saxophone playing goes, not the speed thing, because now when you talk about saxophone playing or, or instrumental play, it's all about speed, 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 speed. But it's about like the core to your sound, the ability to play long phrases and recover quickly. I mean, I feel so much better as, as a saxophone player as a result of, of spending that time. Right. doing that it paid off but that was the that was the thing was that i don't want to be like i am now i don't want to be a 60 year old hearing recordings of myself 20 years ago going man i was bringing it back then 
Right. And now I hear recordings from 20 years ago and I go, Ugh, that shit's terrible. Yeah. And that's always where I would hope to to want to be. Right, right. Oh, I definitely know that feeling hearing the hearing the old soul lives that we're like reissuing the twentieth anniversary and I'm like, oh man, this is right. this is painful. Um, right. But then, you know, I I was actually just it made me think of the gig that you and I did, that gig with George Porter and it was Bob Weir and I think John Modesky. It was a crazy combination, but George Porter is somebody who's seventy two, I believe, and he gigs every night and kicks my ass every time I play with him. George is killing. And he's one of those guys that I think about and I'm like, man, I hope I, it's not even just his playing, it's how his excitement for music and willingness to go wherever with it, you know? Well, he's in the right city for that. New Orleans is probably, probably one of the most unpretentious places I've ever been. Right, right. That's a city. I mean, Southern Towns, there's piles of unpretentious towns. I mean, you can't even live in a town like, you know, it have been in Mississippi and even pretend to be pretentious. I mean, it just doesn't work. Cats want to play, man. Cats do gigs. Yeah. And they say, hey, man, want to do the hit? They say, yeah, or they say no. They don't say, sure, man, what's the bread? Right, right. You know, it's like, yeah, let's make the hit. Yeah. And I still get into, not as much as I used to, but I still get in disagreements with my manager over this stuff. Yeah. Because somebody will call and I say, yeah, man, let's make the hit. Do you even know what you're getting paid? I'm like, what do I care? It's yeah. about the hit. Yeah. You have to stop. And she calls it, it's really funny. She calls it giving away one's talent. Right, right. And she's a manager, so that's fine. She's supposed to think like that on one hand. But I don't think she really understands the degree to which I get things from all the other musicians that make me better because she's a math person. So everything is a zero sum game. Yeah. And then for me, it's like, man, the amount of stuff that I learned just from being in those experiences, you can't you can't put a price tag on that. In New Orleans, I, I kind of feel like also not only are people, but I, th I think you find musicians playing gigs and, and it's just music. Like, I feel like in New York City, yes, it's not only about the money. It's like, okay, is it a jazz gig? Is it an R&B gig? Right. Is it a right. hip hop right. gig? Right. In New Orleans, you kind of see a lot. I mean, of course, there's cats that are jazz players or, or whatever you want to say. Right. But I, I feel like, and then like people will bill something as like, oh, it's a hip hop fusion of this, that. I'm like, man, in New Orleans, they've been doing that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Maple Leaf every Monday night, you know, or whatever. It's a gig. Yeah. Also, I feel like even when it is like a quote unquote jazz gig, people dance in New Orleans. Right. You know, I feel like in New York, it's very much us and them. You know, it's like the people in the audience sitting and ordering their drink. There's a lot of reasons for that. The guys in the 60s had kind of a, a, a reaction to the fact that jazz was not taken seriously artistically. I mean, my thinking, just because I grew up in a different generation than them, it's like, right. why would you care what those people think anyway? So then there was this thing where suddenly guys were calling jazz African-American classical music. I mean, that means you have to sit down and listen, no more talking. Every great jazz record that I've ever heard that was live was in a club and it was piles of talking and people s seemed to dig their conversations and the music concurrently. Right. It was a crucial element, like the hang, the social thing course, that was yeah. just kind of wiped out under this, this, this higher notion of aesthetic appreciation of the music as an art form. So there were a lot of people who used to go to jazz clubs that just started going to other kind of nightclubs where they could listen to music and smoke and hang out and talk shit and do all the stuff that they used to be able to do in the jazz clubs. Right, right, so right. 
in a lot of ways, musicians, we did that to ourselves. Right, right. You know, with the, with this whole idea, whereas in New Orleans, I mean, you know, this is a gig, bro. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you're always going to have, I mean, I just remember my dad playing and people were, there were people who were sitting in the front listening and the people in the back were drinking and talking and hanging and nobody seemed to bother the other person. Growing up in a obviously musical family, your mom being a singer, your singer, your dad being a, a pianist, but also an educator. Like, was it, was it kind of a given that you were going to be a musician? How did, or, you know, what was it like in, in your house musically? It was a given that Winton was going to be a musician when he was 12 because he decreed that he was going to be one. Right. My dad was really resistant to the idea of kids playing music because he insisted that we do it. Fortunately, we lived in a city. I mean, it's one of them cities where, like, you know, tough guys play instruments. Right. You know what I mean? The hard guys are hanging out, checking out music and having music conversations, the gangsters. And so the, yeah. the, what music means in New Orleans is very different than what it means in other other places. This is true. Yeah. So being a high school kid. You, know, you turn on those movies, you know, the, the coming of age movies. And there's always the scene where like the football players pick on the guys in the band and the guys in the band and the girls in the band, they all have on braces and they all have on glasses. Well, that, that shit was not the reality where I came from. Right, right. It had a whole different vibe to it. We were digging playing music because it was one of the cool things to do. Yeah. Uh, in, in the city, my dad never pressed us. The only thing that any of us were really certain of is that I was going to be like the funketeer in the family. Right. Because that's where my head was at. I, I had a no, I was a no jazz zone until I turned 19. I didn't even try to listen to any of it. I was a straight up funketeer. Like Parliament Funkadelic, James Brown, what was what was the like uh James Brown, everything that was with Parliament Funkadelic, yeah. the, the Isley brothers, to a lesser degree the Barkays, Confunction, BT Express, War, yeah, The Emotions, Earth Wind and Fire, the whole gamut, you know, Funkadelic, H- Hendrix uh, Led Zeppelin, who's quite funky. Yeah. So uh, Led Zeppelin was in there. Uh, Stevie, you know, it's just the whole the whole thing. And there were a group of us, and we would all bring music. And the Edwin Hawkins singers, it just there was this whole vibe that we were on, where we were trying to have this band that just had all these multifaceted things. Even for me, I brought the nerd contingents because I was really into Gino Vanelli at the time. Oh yeah, okay. And and Zappa. So everybody was bringing all of this shit that you wouldn't expect in this little group of guys, me and, and Theto and Kermit Campbell and Eric. I never knew Eric's last name, guitar player. Yeah. yeah. He was the Hendrix guy. Right, uh, right. And my boy Lolas, he was the, uh, he's a writer now. He, uh, Lolas was a guitar player and he was the, uh, the the Marley guy. So he brought the Marley sound in. Right, but right. It, it, nobody was bringing in no jazz, nothing, man. That really wasn't part of our thing. Interesting. So when I really started to like jazz, my, everybody in the family was kind of surprised when I said, you know, I think I want to learn how to play jazz. My dad laughed out, out loud on the phone. Wow. And when you when you first picked up the saxophone, was there a particular player that that kind of inspired you to want to play? No, I was tactical. completely. Yeah. I was playing piano in my R&B band. I hated it. I was playing clarinet in the orchestra, which I loved. Fucking loved that, man. Yeah. Playing clarinet marching band, the whole thing. So when I met this guy, Kermit Campbell, who was a much better piano player than me anyway, playing in a rival band, I begged him to join our band. And he thought something nefarious was going on. Like, man, don't you play piano, bro? I said, I 
I don't really want to play piano. If you come do this, then I can play saxophone. Yeah. So this whole thing about getting the saxophone was more about getting a horn section and then forcing Winton to join the band. So we had a, right. from a one piece horn section to a three piece horn section in about two weeks. And uh, <laughs> we had a blast. Winton didn't want to join. And I just pressured him and he's joined. I'll, I'll check it out for a month. Man, he stayed in there for two years. We, wow. had, a, we had a great time. We had a great time. And it was really great to, to play with him just, just, just to have gigs and just play alongside him and this guy, John Roche, who lives in Seattle now my boy Lebo. Right, so uh, right. that was the reason I, I, I switched to saxophone. I wasn't really listening to individual players. I was more interested in like Earth, Wind & Fire had a, a great horn section. Oh yeah. There were those Jerry Hay and those guys had a band called Sea Wind and they had a great horn section. Of course, Chicago had a great horn section. That was the whole thing. Just checking out horn sections. Tower Power had a badass horn section. Yeah. And, uh, it was more about playing with a group. It was not about considering like being an individual stepping out in front and playing solos. The first time I ever really got into that, I think it was 76 was when I bought this uh, David Sanborn record. He has two of them. One's called straight to the heart. And the other one's called straight from the heart or something oh, okay. like that. But the, the, the early one, yeah, yeah, man, I couldn't stop. I, that was the one I couldn't stop playing it. And I wanted to play like him it still didn't occur to me like I would actually start a band where I would be in front. It was always yeah. in my mind being part of a horn section, but that was the first time that I spent a lot of time, you know, Don Myrick had a solo in earth, wind and fire for the song reasons. Oh yeah. That's classic. Yeah. You know, King Curtis had a solo on respect. Yeah. I mean, yep. things like that. You right. Know? Right. Things like that. Maceo had a couple of solos with, with J with JB. Yeah. Uh, Pee Wee Ellis. I mean, I listened to the solos but it was more about using this to incorporate it in the gig with the creators. Yeah, it was yeah, never yeah. about like one day I thought I was going to be a school teacher back then. Anyway, I didn't right, think right. I was going to be a professional musician at all. It was just out of the love of, of playing. So, and then when you ended up at Berkeley, were you kind of at that point, is that kind of when you shifted into digging into jazz and, and being more of a soloist? I went there to, to to learn production techniques and I was still on right. the idea of like moving to LA and, and getting in a horn section. Well, two things happened. I I heard Winton playing with Art Blakey's band. I'd been bragging about Winton all week, making everybody at the school pissed off. Cause it's not like now where you can say, check out this link, you know, this right. is 1979, there's no links and there's no, and I just, man, my brother's coming to town, he's killing. And everybody, including the trumpet teachers at Berkeley, like, man, we so sick of hearing about your brother. Yeah. And uh, we all went to the concert and went and was killing the shit. But I really liked the band because Billy Pierce was in that band. Bobby Watson was in the band. Yeah. It was a great three piece horn section. Back to the horn section thing. I was like, man, that's great, man. They're tight. It's a good horn section. I'm going to have to start checking out some jazz. This would be great because I'd started to notice that the sound coming out of New York right around that time was not as funky as the music I grew up with. And it's mostly because they started, the machines started coming in and right, everybody right. was, you know, Lisa, Lisa and called jam and it was all machines. Yeah. And then the keyboard sax thing started coming in. And I was yeah. like, wait a minute, this is like the end of the horn section. Like I was expecting people to say, well, I mean, that's cool, but it doesn't really sound like a sax. Right. And then I would hear people saying, damn, man, that sounds just like the sax. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> we're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of a combination of things. And, right. and, you know, and you could see it by 82, 83, the horn sections were just not, that whole thing was going away. People were moving away from that. 
Right, right. There's a little bit of a comeback now, not much of one, but there's a little bit. But the people were moving away, musicians in the audiences, they just go wherever the music is. Yeah. You know, yeah. they just dig it, but they don't have that kind of, they don't listen with that kind of specificity. And I'm not saying that they should. It's not a pejorative yeah. statement, it's just a factual statement. Right. right. They're not. Right. So, uh, all of those things kind of happened at the same time. And I said, well, maybe, maybe jazz might be okay. Right. Right. And then you eventually you joined Art Blakey's band with your brother. Right. right. Did you end up leaving school? Uh, well, I, I finished my first year and then that summer Blakey needed a baritone saxophone player for a, a mini big band that he was putting together. He augmented the horn section from three to six, two trumpets, uh, one trombone, right. Three, three saxophones. Wow. So it was me, Bobby Watson on alto, Billy Pierce on tenor, and me on baritone. Wow. With uh, Robin Eubanks on trombone, Wynton wow. on cool. trumpet, and Valerie Ponomarev on trumpet. So I did that for the summer. And then when I came back to school, I was kind of like, yeah, this this is not going to, I'm not going to be around there much longer. Hey, what was that tour like, traveling in a group like that? Was it like Europe and, and whatnot, or was it? Yeah, it was Europe. Yeah, it was Europe. It was Europe. Yeah. It was mostly, it was, well, for me, it was my first time. Yeah. I still remember it really well in my head. I remember all the things where we went, because we were doing really small towns in Italy. Everything was by bus, and it wasn't tour bus. It was by bus. Like we were actual in like bus. A, a, yeah. a, tour, a tourist bus. Yeah, yeah. You know, in seats, sleeping for hours. But I was oh, wow. 20 years old. I didn't care. Yeah, I was yeah. 19, really. I was 19. I was, man, this is great. Wow. You know? They could have put my ass on the top of the bus. I'd have been, this is great, man. I'm in Europe, you know, playing music every night. I wasn't really that good, and I wasn't really musically prepared for it, but I was definitely emotionally curious and and excited about it and not afraid to make mistakes and learn from them. And was that, would you say that was like a huge growth period, like being in that band and traveling with that band? It it, It was an introduction to the life. Right. And right. I, I knew it was something that I would want to do. Right, right. And when I joined the actual band, when Bobby Watson left the band and I took his place in the sextet, that's when the growth started. That's when Blakey started really, you know, putting his foot in my ass and explaining to me why I was such a terrible player and what it was I had to do to improve. And because I listened to him, some of the older guys would see that I was listening to him. So then I all of a sudden, all of a sudden I had all these uncles right, that right. were telling me to check this guy out, check that guy out. You need to think about the music this way, not that way. So, you know, then Dizzy starts giving me advice and Leroy Vinegar starts giving me advice and Red Holloway starts giving me advice and Leroy Callender starts giving me and I had all these older guys. Buddy Tate starts giving me advice and yeah. that's when I really learned a lot. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. Every musician, in my opinion, has a few people that they have to, I, I don't want to say rip off, but you learn a lot of their yeah. mix. You, oh, that's you, it. You, you, well, you, you, you ingest their vocabulary. Um, yeah. When would you say you started turning that into your own vocabulary, your own words? I, I listen to a lot of saxophone players who play like Bird and play like this guy, play like that guy. I wasn't really knocked out by it. 
And I would say, yeah, that's not really, you know. And they said, well, man, it sounds, it sounds just like him. And then that was the thing. They would say, it sounds just like him. And I said, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And as I got older, I kind of blurted it out like I was 23 or 24. I said, that's the problem. All the notes are right, but the sound is wrong. And it was one of those things that when I said it, I went, yeah. whoo, yeah. So yeah. then I immediately stopped trying to play their licks. Like that was the hardest part about playing like Sonny Rollins was not the notes he played, but the sound he created and how it felt when he played it. Yep. How does one learn how to deliberately play behind the beat with a certain kind of naturalness? And that took two years, two and a half years. So I never really worried about the whole individual sound thing. Yeah. Because I, I, I heard a recording of me playing with Blakey in 83. People would say, yeah, man, you got a different sound now. And I'm like, no, I got tapes of me playing with the creators in 1976. It sounds the same. It's better. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the, the performance is better. But when I hear tapes of me at 12, it still sounds like me. It's just shitty. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So like the, the, the nomenclature or the whatever the, 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 the phrase we like to use is he or she. Well, they finally found their voice. I've always had my voice. I've always sounded like me. I just wasn't very good. Every time I would learn from these guys, it would make me less shitty than I was prior to stealing ideas from them, stealing sound from them and rhythm. And, but it was never really it, it. I did. My approach was not the kind of approach that you could put in a book. Right. Well, you could, but it would just be you would run into copyright problems because the book would consist of sound, click the link and listen to the sound, you know, imitate the sound. Right, Notice right. how this musician does that. Notice how the guys in the 1940s used the side D, which is traditionally used for the upper register in the lower register for myriad reasons. It's the things that when, you, when you're just talking about patterns or harmonics, you don't really talk about those those kind of things. It's the, the thing that I find interesting about the way they played is how it sounded when they played. So I kind of right. focused on that. And I still do. I still I still cop stuff. I learned a couple of old, uh, finally learned a couple of old uh, Coleman Hawkins solos once the pandemic started. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some Bichet. And there's a lot to learn from those guys. The most that I've ever learned is from transcribing solos. But it's funny because sometimes they take years to take hold in terms of what Actually, Damn. you know what I mean? Like years and years later, I'll play something and realize that I needed to kind of keep it in my head for a while and figure out where it was actually coming from. Here's the trick, Chris. Yeah. I had the pleasure of talking to a neuroscientist about music. And he had all these musical questions. And I'm like, oh, neuroscience. Okay, great. And it's really interesting, you know, the brain. Like He says, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Like these things like, in terms of brain activity and purpose, there is no section of the brain that is designed for music. The music part has leached on to the speech part, you know, because there's a speech part for, there's a part for learning, there's a part for doing, there's a part for speech, there's a part of the brain that, and, and music is leached on. And what he was telling me, he says, the two things that are hard when you're doing what you're doing is that the brain is incredibly lazy. It hates doing work, but it will do the work if you make it. But he says, you have to think, he says, think of the brain. And this really helped when I was teaching my students, because, you know, yeah. young students are so impulsive and they have such short attention spans. Like the idea that you're going to make them learn something that they won't hear and they're playing for two years. is just anathema to them. Right. So he says, 
it was great. He says, uh, think of the brain as a computer that takes everything in and can't delete anything. Right. So when you learn something new, the brain starts going to work and it, it writes very slowly, 0. 0.001 millimeters a day. So it's working while you sleep. It's just constantly trying to get this thing together. That's why it takes years for it to show up because it takes years for the brain to write the code. And it's usually writing over other things. Yeah. Says, so it's just all this data that's just piled on top of it, which is why, you know, in, in sports, if you have a sport you play and you started out with like a bad golf swing and you get a good golf swing every now and then the bad golf swing suddenly shows up. That's because it never goes anywhere. Right. You're just trying to write over it, you know, and that's what happens in music. It takes a long time for the thing you're working on now to show up. Right. Right. But it, it's just, it, but, but it's because of the way that the brain works. So when I have these frustrated kids saying, I've been working on this solo for two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. Try eight months, you damn fool. You know, it's right, just, right. you just you know, make them understand this is part of the process. But you're right. right. When I, I learned, I spent two and a half years trying to play like Sonny and it, and, and it didn't work. And I just said, fuck it. And I stopped. Right. And then the year after that, it just popped out of the horn. Right. On a gig. Right. I almost jumped out of my suit, bro. I was so happy. Crazy. I, I've been, you know, singing for a little bit, but I finally started taking lessons. It's going to take a while for it to set in, but retraining, because, you know, when you talk, you're basically, I mean, it's the same thing. And retraining yourself to use your voice in a, the correct way, like you were saying, learning from the classical uh, teacher in Austin. But what really blew my mind was he started looking at me because there was, when there's, when I'm kind of reaching for a note, I clench up and I do this thing with my face. And he was like, why do you do that? And I'm like, well, when I play guitar, I'm doing that all the time. And he's like, well, you shouldn't, you know, because, <laughs> and, and it, it kind of blew me away. Cause I'm like, well, he's like, cause that same, that you need to be, able to breathe correctly, you know, and of course for singing, that's obvious, but right. really when you're doing anything, you should be breathing consistently. You know what I mean? And I, it's funny cause I always see pictures of myself on the internet doing these, you know, oh, these crazy faces. Yeah. Well, you know, man, when, when, when the spirit is, when you feel in the Holy ghost, you, man, you, you can't gotta, control it. Yeah. You just, you can't just go, Oh, this is great. I mean, you, you feel it. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is true. I guess what you got to do is to learn it and then to actually incorporate it where it's just a natural thing are two different things, you know? It takes a while. I mean, I had a simple thing where traditionally non-classical saxophone players always play with too much bottom pressure. Right. Which in, 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 in layman's terms means that the horn is lower than it should be. Right. When you visualize air coming out of your mouth, naturally we envision the air coming out in a straight line. Right. But because our mouths are conically shaped, the air goes around and it comes down. The alto saxophone is designed like this. So if this is your mouth and you're playing here, the yeah. air is perpetually missing the target. So you raise the instrument so that it's leveled to where the stream comes. And then all of a sudden playing low notes are easier. All these things are easier. I learned that from Harvey in that one week, it may have been five years 
And it's the telltale signs right. because I, with, with the low notes, guys just usually blast those things out of the horn or they subtone the, the notes. They make that fruffy sound. Right. But just trying to play this, play the low notes with just a regular tone. When you do that, it splits. And when I hear the note split, I go, but yeah. I, I did that for, for years. I'd hear yeah. the note splitting and, and because, yeah, it takes, you know, you've been doing something for, for 30 years one way. Yeah. 30 years generally wins. One thing you said that I thought was such an interesting quote, uh, you were talking about your Crazy People music album. I've been going down your catalog this past week quite a bit. (laughs) And uh, I love that record, by the way. You pointed out that that was kind of a turning point for you. And you said it was a turning point in the way that if you thoroughly immerse yourself in all of the data and then see things in the data that the other guys don't see. And I believe it's an Einstein reference. I don't know if it's an Einstein quote. Well, it's a book by Robert. And I can't remember his wife's name, but. Uh, Robert Root Bernstein is his name. Got they it. were teaching at Michigan State, and they wrote a book called Spark of Genius. Michelle, ah. Robert and Michelle Root Bernstein. Yeah. And it may not have been, no, it wasn't a quote by him. Okay. But he was talking about how these things came to him in a flash, and he knew they were right. And right. he hired a mathematician not to help him with the, not to help him with the conclusion, but to help him write the math for what he knew was a correct conclusion. He knew that it was right. Right. But it would have taken him much longer. So he hired a mathematician. And the thing that they were trying to point out and the thing that they stressed was that uh, Einstein did not invent the theory of relativity. He discovered the theory of relativity, which means that any number of quality physicists could have done the same thing. It's just when they looked at the same data he did, they saw things, they didn't see what he saw. He right. saw something that everyone else missed, right. which is a really cool way of thinking about a lot of things. Whereas it, whatever, I'm not thinking of the what rhetoric and our popular rhetoric, it's always about, is it new? Is it new? Is it innovative? Right. There's a bunch of new shit in the old shit. That's, you just gotta yeah. be good enough to find it. It's yeah. there. It's sitting there waiting for somebody to find it. Right. But instead, what we have are people out there literally trying to invent new things. And the only way to do that is not through harmony, because the harmony is pretty established. It's through math. Yeah. So then you have all this music that's really math heavy and it impresses, but it doesn't move anyone. Right. It's like the whole, this whole network where the new music geniuses play music that's like bereft of melody and all these other things. Yeah. And uh, this book really helped me say, man, yeah, I don't need to go out there and try to find anything new. I just need to keep listening to the other stuff and wait for the, the answer to arrive. Right. That record was the one where the, the, the sonic answer started to arrive. Right. Like, you know, we don't need to keep playing these same songs that everybody else is playing and arriving at the same conclusion. So rather than spend our time trying to come to a new conclusion with this stuff, the best way to come to a new conclusion is to just not play this shit anymore. <laughs> just don't, don't play these songs. Right. Because these songs 
they're almost like a mosquito. You know, a mosquito has a simplex nervous system. If it lands on your arm, it's going to bite you. It doesn't matter if it knows, well, our hand's about to come and squash me. I'm a mosquito. That's what I do. I bite right. people. Right. <laughs> and you play certain songs, and especially like the post-bop stuff, it forces yeah. you to play a certain way. Right. And if you're tired of playing that way, stop playing those songs. Yeah. And it was probably other songs. We started, that's, I think, the first record where we played a song by Keith, by Keith Jarrett. Yeah. And yeah. that song really said, we can just start doing other things, just doing it in different ways and and not really keep going back to that same place. So, yeah, it, yeah. it came from that book, Spark of Genius, though. It's a great book. Right. It's so applicable to music because... I mean, to this day, in terms of songwriting, too, because, you know, I've been focusing on songwriting for years and really like it is everything you think everything's been done. You know what I mean? But um, like you said, kind of finding your voice within these things, it's doable. You got to look at it the right way. One thing that I love about your music is that you've had, for the most part, the same band for what, two decades? Yeah. I have a personal experience where, and I don't know if you, you probably don't remember this gig, but Soul Live was always like kind of not so into doing jazz festivals because we're like kind of a rock band, to be honest, you know? So like we, but, but we would get booked on them. I and, know, I remember y'all out there, man. Yeah, the yeah, we, though, bro. yeah no, I mean, I, not that I, it wasn't that we didn't dig it. It's just like this seated vibe. We always like playing rock clubs and just do what we do. And right. we got booked on the Indianapolis Jazz Jazz Festival. You guys played after us. It was the quartet. And this is the first time I, Justin Faulkner was playing with you, but he was really young at the time. Yeah. And he's still young. Is that the one where it rained? It rained. Right. Okay, so you do remember this gig. Yes. Jesus, I couldn't believe we were still playing it. I really hope this was a special gig, because if you guys play like that every night, I quit, okay? Oh, we but, play like that every night. <laughs> no, I, I, know, I know you do. I know. <laughs> Especially with him. He brings it like that. That night, and I remember, because, you know, we had a schedule. We were flying in and out. I didn't know who was playing. I saw I, right. I, I saw you guys were playing. To be totally honest, man, like, I, I was seeing jazz in New York City. I was feeling so uninspired by, quote, unquote, new jazz, okay? I hear you, bro. You Seeing you guys is one you. of the best jazz concerts I've ever seen. Not only, it started raining, and I'm standing in the rain, and you know how you're supposed to have, like, a van person, like, taking right. you? They couldn't even get my attention. I think I ended up missing the ride and like I, I was so blown away. I'm telling you, man, that band and the way that y'all played together was one of the greatest jazz concerts I've ever seen or concerts, period. Well, listening I, to old music, you know, yeah. and, and you say, well, what's good about it and what's, what's bad about it and what's missing and what's not missing? Even when I was playing, like when, like when, when we were playing with the, on the R&B scene in New Orleans before turntables took over. There were all these local bands. Right. We had a good band, but there were two or three bands that were just way better than us. Yeah. Me and Kermit would talk about this because they weren't better players, but they were better. And I'm 15, 16 years old saying, what the hell, man? These guys can't even play like Come to Jesus and Whole Notes. It's just like they. So the more you listen to them, it's like that. What well, that's the magic in music. That's yeah. what they have. They have the thing. And and now I can articulate it as an older person. Yeah. It's like everybody in the band understands what their function is. They right. are not trying to redefine their function. They're not trying to expand their function. They are all playing for the greater good. So when they're grooving, the shit is just grooving. Right. If you're playing backbeat music, 
Sure, you could add in, but yeah. do you need to? No, right. they yeah. all had real jobs. They didn't share it all day. Yeah. So the groove is just, yeah. that was it. Yeah. That's it. Not, you know, not all the extra yeah. shit that you hear all the time now, because the musicians now, it's like, how do you bring yourself into the music? Right, right. You know, how can you contribute? Whereas those guys are just men. They just playing, they're playing the tune. Yeah. They're not adding no extra shit. And when I got to, to New York playing jazz, I noticed that what most bands had in common to me is that they just, they didn't really interact with one another. They all knew the structure and they all started and stopped at the same time, but they didn't play together. As a matter of fact, guy would play a solo. Then the next solo comes, he's either at the bar or looking at his nails or getting <laughs> up on a, a woman. And, and I'm just looking at it going, they don't even, they don't even like this shit. So when we were in Winton's band, the whole thing is, man, first of all, we got to like it. If we don't like it, do something else. Yeah. You know, and we need to, we need to check each other out. So we started writing these songs where if you didn't pay attention, you know, like you play a song, like the way you look tonight, everybody knows it. I know it in my sleep. So you play these other songs where you have to pay attention to people for it to succeed. And that was the whole thing with the band. Like we have to be engaged because the music will just completely fall apart. If we're not, right. we have to enjoy it. We have to have fun. We have to have an outward expression of joy when we play, not as an act, but as a real thing. Right. And uh, it's got a groove. It's yeah. got to have that old school yeah. beat. It's got to be like the forties, yeah. not like the eighties. It has to have that four on the floor where not like Gene Krupa days where you're just going boom, 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 boom. But you have to, it's implied. You got to feel that beat. Like that's, that's what makes, you know, what makes funky things funky is the space between the beats, the invisible space between the beats. Like the thing that makes it funky is all the shit that's implied. Whereas when you go to school, they teach you all the things that are not implied. Everything is about specificity. I mean, I, I remember a guy bought a funk book at the, at the bookstore it's like funk drum patterns. I'm like, dude, it's a fucking backbeat. What do you, yeah. what patterns? What do you, you yeah. know, it's like, okay, all right, well, yeah, okay, sure. So it's like that kind of thing. Where yeah. We, yeah, yeah. You, what jazz had become was a bunch of really great players, but they don't play well together. They play well individually. Right. And they're impressive individually, but yeah. they don't play together. They don't even, you know, like, like jazz used to, jazz is an offshoot of dance music. Yeah. And you can listen to it. You know, when I started playing, I was listening to the 60s and then I eventually got to the 50s. Then I got to the 40s. But when I started getting back to the 30s and the 20s, I understood how the 20s informed the 40s. Right. And then you hear Max Roach on a record real early and he's playing, you know, the whole time. Yeah. And yeah, I was talking yeah. to Blake about it. He goes, man, we all do that. I said, yeah. you don't do it. He goes, I do it every fucking night. What are you talking about? He says, it's just underneath the bass now. And I, I was like, no, it's not. And then I started paying attention and I noticed you could hear it real soft. Yeah, yeah. He's just it's playing right just underneath the bass. Ding, 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 ding. So you start, you know, I start telling, you know, Attain, he was right there. He was like, yeah, oh, I'm yeah. checking it out. But you talk to other musicians and say, well, you got to start feathering. And they're like, you know, yeah, it's not my sound, man. <laughs> it's yeah, just like, yeah, they just don't yeah. want nothing to do with it. Right. So we got a quartet, but we can get after it. Yeah, yeah you know, with sustained intensity. Like the whole thing is to have that harmony that Wayne Shorter's band had, that Miles' band had with Wayne Shorter, 
with the absolute intensity of Coltrane's band. Right, right. Where it's just unrelenting and it's unrelenting. Yeah. But don't do it for like 45 minutes per song. Right. Just do it for like 15 minutes, you know. <laughs> yeah. Because train, yeah. train was in there and it was a spiritual thing. And like 45 minutes later, he's still yeah. playing. It's like, yeah. no, not that. But, yeah. But like th- those, th- it, you know, those two bands, and they all came up, you know, they were all born in the late 20s or the early 30s. So they all right. grew up listening to dance music. Sonny right. Rollins, all those guys. Like Sonny has this song, Doxy, that's real popular. Yeah. Uh, amongst the jazz guys. Man, I heard that song form on five different songs between 1929 and 1932. Exactly, no, you know, chord for chord. So like Blakey told me, I was listening to Coltrane and Blakey walks by with that gravelly voice of his and says, you know, what the fuck do you think you're doing? I said, I'm not trying to learn how to play like Coltrane. And he laughed. <laughs> you're never going to learn how to do it doing that shit. And I said, uh, oh, so if I want to play like Coltrane, I shouldn't listen to Coltrane. Is that what you're saying? And he says, what I'm saying is, when Coltrane was 15 years old, what the fuck do you think he was listening to? Tapes of himself in the future? And he just walks away. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is good. And it was the first time. Yeah. So this is like 84, 82. Yeah. So I'm 22 years old. And it was the first time that it occurred to me that if you really want to play like a guy, then the first question you need to ask is, what was that guy listening to? Instead of reflexively going to the person. I said, I want to be like this person. I want to. Well, if you really want to be like that person, you got to go 20 years back. And he's the guy that very sarcastically, jerk, uh, got me to that place. Wow, that's interesting. You've also talked about playing with the band versus on top of the band. And that was in specific reference uh, to the collaboration with the Grateful Dead that's happened. And I I mean, really with... um, You've played with all sorts of pop artists, but I was curious a little bit, like specifically with the Grateful Dead, because a lot of people talk about that collaboration. And I know there was only like a handful of times that you played with them, but I know it comes up a lot. And so I'm I'm curious, A, how it happened and and B, what what that experience was like. There's a guy uh, you probably don't know. His name is Jim Louie and Jim was managing a band that he wanted me to produce some tracks for. Uh, So I was in Ithaca, New York, where I met my longtime uh, engineer, Rob Hunter, at this session at famous Pyramid Sound in Ithaca. Jim's cousin, Annie Eustavinas, worked in video production for the dead. She lives in San Francisco, but they're in Nassau, Long Island. Yeah. So because Jim lived in New York, she just says, hey, Jim, what's going on? What are you doing? You know, how you been? He goes, oh, I'm working with Branford on this thing. He says, oh, you know, Phil loves him. Yeah. And, she's, and he comes and says, hey, Phil Lesh says hi. I was like, yeah, tell him I said hi. The next day she calls, Phil wants to know if you want to play with the dead. And I say, well, when we finish with these tunes, yeah, you know, I'll. So uh, the day after that, we finished and it's uh, four hours back to New York from Ithaca. I drove to Nassau and in my mind, I'm playing it out saying, I don't have a pass. Cause my only, my experience with that is like playing with Sting. If you don't have a pass, I mean, I couldn't even get into the gig. Yeah. Cause I didn't have a pass, you know, right, so I'm right. like, they're not going to let me in. But I said, I'd go, so I'll go. And I got there and I said, yeah, I'm supposed to play with these guys. And they said, yeah, just drive around, around back. Bizarre. I'm like, oh, okay, great. I get to the backstage area. I'm like, yeah, I'm supposed to play with the dead. They're like, oh yeah, I think they're expecting you're going in. 
<laughs> it was like yeah. one of those things. I think because because I'm known as a jazz musician, I think they thought I was I was just going to come in there and like do jazz tricks. So they they did the thing that I would have done in the exact same situation is you bring somebody that you don't know up on the last song of the, of, of the set or the last song of the first half. And then they get you on there and they get you off and then the second half is theirs. And I mean, I know that the sound and I know the vibe when the song starts, I just don't play. I just stay out of the way till I can hear what the form is. Right. Had you heard these songs? Have you had you heard? Did, no. you, did you know anything about what no. you were going to play on? No. I mean, I knew I knew the dead from from the early 70s when I was in school. But they didn't say, hey, you're going to come up on this song, that song and with prepped. No, no prep. The magic of, of, of popular music is the simplicity of it. Where guys on my side of the, the industry get it wrong is that they think because it's because the, the, the form is simple, that it is simple. And that's where they crash. Yeah. You know, oh, G7, I can play this, I can play that. No, nah, really, you can't play any of that shit. It's the sound G7. <laughs> it's not the, the, the chord structure G7. Right, right. You know, it's like that thing. So, but, but because of my early career, like I told you growing up, I mean, I know what the sound is and what it's yeah. supposed to be. And I know that you play in the spaces. You don't just keep playing and keep playing and keep playing. It's like, you know, you, you're listening, yeah. you know? You know, he's singing a song. It goes one, na, 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 four, na, 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 one. And it goes, you know, five, 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 four, 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 yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, but I'm yeah. not thinking numbers. I'm hearing yeah. da, 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 Now the bridge, they have a little trick. But um, but um, but um, but um, yeah. I said, oh, shit, okay, that's, whoa, you know? Yeah. Okay. But so then on the second, on the on the second verse, I come in because like yeah. I've been listening and I got it. When the singer's singing, I learned that when I was fourteen, getting cussed out by a singer. When the singer's singing, I shouldn't be playing anyway. Yeah. So it's just a matter of playing in the spaces. When they have the hits, I'll play the hits. Da 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 da. Yeah, I get, you know it worked. When, when the song was over, I just said, hey, thanks for letting me play. And they said, no, play the second half. And we played the second half. And then the dead has lost their minds. And yep. it was it became this it became <laughs> this thing. <laughs> yeah. That because there's no social media. I lived in Brooklyn, bro. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the gig was over. I went back to Brooklyn. Yeah. And there was no way to the chatter was beyond me. I, you yeah. know, then people started calling me. Yo, man. I heard you at the gig. You were amazing. I'm like, who is this? I oh, don't worry about that, man. This is, I'm a dead yeah. ed. We're harmless. But the guys are going to be calling you, man. You know, yeah. we're everywhere. We have a network and you were killing. I'm like, thanks. Yeah. And then the shit just kept happening. And it wasn't like I was scared or nothing. I, you know, New Orleans, people, are, you know, it's not, not a big deal. Yeah. But the fact that two, three months after a gig, people that I don't know are calling me and I'm going, wow, that shit must have been, I guess it worked. Yeah, it was a blast. I mean, I had a good time. 
That yeah. was good. We had a good time. And the record that recording kind of it ended, it came out years later. I mean, that was kind of like a legendary bootleg. Yeah. Uh, that eventually came out, and a, a lot of people have have circulated that. But yeah, the Grateful Dead world goes deep and wide. It's it's pretty incredible to. Uh, I use them as an example for what I was trying to do, just professionally. I mean, in, in, in popular culture, we only pay attention to the things that generate the most noise. Yeah. So it's either that the noise generates record sales or the record sales generates, they generate noise. I'm going to do this gig with the Grateful Dead. There's no red carpet. There's no paparazzi. There's no security guard telling me I can't come in. They didn't say you don't have a pass. You don't stand a chance. The whole thing. I get back there. And I'm playing this gig with these guys and I walk on the stage and there's fucking 18,000 people out there. Right. And it's not on the radio and it's not on the television. You didn't hear it. There was none of that, you know, oh, everybody's here, the concert of the year. And I'm like, what? Now, this is before like the Internet. I mean, this is like, what the hell? Play your music, identify who your fan base is and play to that fan base. But we're always trying to play to the invisible fan base or the ready made audience. The ready-made audience, I call them, is the audience that turns on the radio and basically tells the DJ, okay, tell me what to buy this week. Right, right. And here's one you're really going to love. And it's, you know, and then they go out and they buy it. Right. But then they have this other crowd of people who just like music and they like the sound of it and they like their thing. And they're not the ready-made audience. So you have to go out and develop your clientele. Soul Live did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't like Soul Live was on the, in the magazines and in the TV. You know, just like you guys just did your thing. And you got the people, man. I mean, it's like, it's the same. And I said, this is the way we need to run this. We need to quit worrying about trying to win awards and trying to get good, you know, popular reviews. Just go out there and hit, man. Yeah. Yeah. Go out there and hit. So, but the the idea that, you know, playing that one gig, I said, yeah, this is kind of, this is how the shit needs to be. Please stick around. We'll be right back after this short break. I wanted to to switch gears because I watched uh, uh, the the Ma Rainey film last night and wanted to ask you oh, a little cool. bit about about this. People for people that don't know, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom featuring Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman uh, and a, an incredible cast. They the two of them, I mean, their performances were unbelievable. Uh, and you did the music to the film. And I was curious, uh, just a little bit of like how, you know, what that process was like and, and, and how that came together. Well, once, once they decided they wanted to hire me, I had a really short, I had three weeks to figure it out. Right. For the first part, because they were filming in July, they called me in May. So we had to be in the studio first week of June because we had to pre-record these songs so that the actors could sing along with them, play along with them, do whatever they needed to do to get ready for the filming. I mean, I'd been listening to twenties music, I'd already had a primer course, but yeah. thanks to these streaming services, I was I was in Australia. Once we agreed and I hung up the phone, I just called up a bunch of 20s playlists up until the actual recording. All I listened to was 20s music right. day and night for a month. I invented these kind of ground rules about how it needs to be. The music right. has to be happy. Yeah. You have to play 
happy. It has to sound happy. I have to write that into the playing. Everybody's pulse needs to be boom, 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 boom. Everybody on the stage, right. even when you're not playing it, you need, you know, and the piano player has to play stride, you know, and if you, what's one big difference between early jazz and modern jazz is that every decade, the sound of the music got lighter and lighter and the notes got longer and longer. So now when you hear piano players play a chord, you know, like on a song like Stella by Starlight, you know, dee ding Whereas in the early thing, now it's all ding ding da da that's all. So the legato shit is out. Everything has to be yeah. punchy. All the <laughs> yeah. phrasing has to be short. All you guys, you know, no linear lines in your solos. Everything has to be arpeggios. Everything has to be this. And they were like, man, wait a minute, because we don't think like that. Right. You know, we don't think like that as as as, as musicians anymore. But you listen to it enough, you start hearing they're all playing this way. If this music's going to represent 1927, it has to be that. Right. It doesn't have to have the exact sounds. We don't have to have the exact harmonic cadences that they did, but it needs to be played in that style. Yeah, that's that's interesting, especially the piano. Like, you know, I wonder if it's all it's also from playing, you know, the upright sound specifically, you know, it, it, it lends itself to the short notes. Yeah. No, it's just, you know, because even if you listen to a band like uh, Paul Whiteman's band didn't use a, a, a upright. They used a, right. a grand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah. Whole, the whole idea of it is that you can't use drum sets. They, they weren't even invented, but you can't right. use them because the recording was so primitive. A drum set would overwhelm the entire room. Ah, oh, right. That's right, why there's okay. no drums. Right. You have an entire orchestra. You have 18, 19 people playing into a cone yeah like one mic yeah and at the really expensive studios you get two mics yeah and it's those cones that we usually see on the old victrolas there's a cone yeah of course yeah you know you see you crank it up and there's a cone that's yeah. the exact same cone except it's yeah going the it's other input. way it's yeah. receiving the sound instead yeah. of emitting it yeah you know instead of transmitting it it's it's receiving it so uh you look at the old pictures and the saxophone players are against the wall the string players are all on risers because they have to find a way to balance the sound. Brass instruments are staggered. Some people over here, some people over there, because it's all going to wind up in this cone. It's amazing how they had to invent baffling before baffles. Right. Isolation before isolation. And in certain cases, people would move too to for the soloists. They'd, they'd like mark an X in different yeah. spots. And, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But when you listen to the music, it, this is all, see, this isn't, they didn't call it early jazz. Yeah. It's just music. It was just dance yeah. music. They were trying to get people to, to shake their asses. Yeah. So when you listen to the music, you know, that it was two, but so all of the pulses were on one and three and the twos were implied. Right. So it's like, you know, like a song like, uh, you took advantage of me, you know, really popular back then. Yeah. The bass is going bump, 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 bump. Boom, boom, and the right. piano goes boom, tick, boom, tick, boom, tick, boom, tick, boom, right, ding, right, ding, ding, ding. it can't be da dee da dee da dee da dee. That doesn't make anybody right. dance. Right, the whole thing was snap. Yeah, banjo, ting, 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 ting. Everything has to snap.
Yeah, everything's effort. Everything's all that legato shit. Yeah, you know, you start doing that legato thing. First of all, it's and I think it's even a a problem in uh, modern jazz because the majority of the people that are going to come to a concert once you leave New York City are not jazz fans exclusively. Right. So what you do when you're in a room like at Smoke, at a club like Smoke on on 10th Street and 7th Avenue, when you're playing just even in New Jersey, just outside of there, and all that legato stuff, if people can't feel the beat, they don't dig it. Yeah. They don't dig it. They want to feel the beat and they want to have a melody that they can put in their pockets. If they can't sing the melody and they can't feel the beat, you don't stand a chance. Do you change your set list or what you're going to do depending on where you are? Yeah, not often, because the thing that I know is that we always have a couple of songs in our back pocket that we can play, like a song like a Sunny Side of the Street yeah, or an old song called My Bucket's Got a Hole in It. Right. right. Where if we play some of our crazy shit and they're just kind of like, eh, we'll throw that in. And then because yeah. people are very generous. They want to like it. They're not yeah. coming, you know. It's like that's, it's the opposite of like you go to a club in New York and you've <laughs> seen it and you're say. there and all the musicians are in the front like this. Yeah, I was just going to say, except in New York yeah. City. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe LA, like LA can be kind of weird, but, uh, you know, yeah, yeah the musicians, you can always spot them. They're in the audience yeah. like this. Yeah. You know, and it, I don't even know what's the purpose. Why go? If you're not yeah. going to try to enjoy it, don't go. But right. uh, people want to like it. Yeah. So if you play something that you dig and they don't dig, but then you turn around and play something that they dig and you dig it too. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. fine. So we always keep those those songs handy. But even when we play our stuff, we play it with a certain kind of intensity where they just get into how intense it is. They don't, you know, they're not doing a harmonic study. They don't they don't go to harmony school. They don't know any of this shit. Right, right. You know, so so we we use that as an advantage, you know, and we make sure that we just change colors all the time. Yeah. Like I always say in the audience, I say, well, if you didn't like that one, don't worry. You're not going to hear another one like that tonight. Right, and then they'll right. laugh. And then we got to make sure that we don't have another song that sounds like that the whole night. <laughs> do you, uh, are you pretty into writing your set lists or do you, do you kind of go off the, I mean, cause you guys are obviously been, being together how, how, as long as you have been, you can kind of just roll, right? I think, I think the biggest advantage we have, look, if you're doing a show and you got lights and you have massive amounts of electronics and you have digital presets, no way you can do it without a set list. Yeah. It's just it's a disaster yeah. unless you're going to do it like the old 70s style, like the dead. When I did that concert with them, their shit was still straight 70s, bro. Yeah. You know, the lights were the ones on the tripods really yeah, high yeah. Yeah. on the side of the stage. I mean, this was all like throwback time yeah. and everybody was just feeling the vibe and doing their thing. Yeah. But if you're going to do a show with lights and, you know, five, six, seven guitars and keyboards on it's insane to try to do that without a set list because right, there's right. too many moving parts as it is. Right. But right. with us, it's four dudes on a stage. Right. Right. You know, the, the lights are just, just keep it simple. Just, we don't really need spotlights. Just yeah. put up some nice colors, man. We'll be all right. You know, don't worry about it. Yeah. So yeah, we don't, we can, we can just, we can just wing it. I got to ask a little bit about the tonight show. Cause it seems like the opposite. <laughs> Of, yeah, well. of of uh, what you do with the quartet, uh, but I, I watched. I actually took a look at, I think what was the first episode, and I forgot how big that band was. Yeah. It was a huge band. Tane on the on drums, Kenny Kirkland, right? Kenny Kirkland, who's one of my favorite piano players of all time, who I discovered through, I think, through the tonight, definitely through you. What was uh, Did you feel pretty constrained? 
in that in, in that band? Like, did you, did you have fun with it initially? I didn't feel constrained because I knew it was constrained when I got there. Right, right. I, I, and I've had these conversations with people not even talking about The Tonight Show, but even before yeah. I did The Tonight Show. Yeah. You know, well, you know, if jazz could be on TV, it would be different. I said, people would hate it then. I mean, it's got nothing to do with it being on TV. It's like we've been conditioned to believe that everything on TV is good and everything on TV is this and the TV. And it is powerful, but I don't know how you could get people to like things that they don't reflexively like just because it's on TV. So I knew what I was getting myself into in that regard. I mean, you know, man, I played in a wedding band. It's really not much different, you know, yeah, even though yeah. people would take that as an insult. And, you know, oh, no, it's a wedding band. When you decide to play in a wedding band and you do a wedding, you already know what kind of songs you have to sing. You know, right. you know, you have to know what songs you have to play always and forever. You know, yeah. you don't go in there playing fucking in a, in a God of the Vita. I mean, it won't work. It's just <laughs> you just don't, you, you know, depending on the age. Well, maybe right. now you could. Now you could because of the age, you yeah. know, the grandparents would be like, yeah, but, you know, in the night in the 1970s where, you know, we're just a few years removed from like Ray Stevens singing Ahab the Arab as a hit yeah. song. I mean, right. you know, so it's like a different. So when I went into the show, I understood what it was. And my whole thing was it's going to be great because we can play like the songs I grew up with. Right. A lot of 70s tunes, a lot of 70s rock tunes and 80s songs. And then we'll get to play with some of the music acts and do all of these things. What really caught me off guard was how quickly my ability to play was just starting to disappear. Like I was losing my instincts. And my dad had this saying that he would say to all of us when we were younger, like the thing you do most is the thing you do best. Right. And when I found myself in other musical situations, it's like the instincts were just gone. Yeah. And that shocked me and it kind of forced me to decide this is a really good gig. It's a good gig to have. And it's right. a long-term gig and you can make a lot of bread and, but yeah, okay. What happens when it ends? Right. You know, I'm, I'm thinking at the time I'll be 50 or something. It's going to end. They yeah. always end. Yeah. But then I won't even know how to play anymore. Right. Right. And so it accelerated that kind of decision-making for me, because when I look at all of the things I'm doing now, there's no way I can envision like writing that music, for my rainy had I just stayed on the show for 18 years. Right, right. It's like there's so much music I had to learn and so much music that I had to know that was antithetical to what was required to make the show successful. I mean, there's a spin, because when you decide to leave a show like that, I mean, especially at that time, like all of the people in the organization were in this competition with Letterman and they were terrified of bad press and bad reviews. So I think the narrative was, you know, I left because I couldn't play jazz there. I was like, it really wasn't worth trying to fight back against that because they were trying to protect their brand. I get it. And yeah. I was just, I decided playing music was more important, but right. I had a great time. I had a great yeah. time. I learned a lot about me. I have a lot of really lifelong friends. Right. And you got to, I mean, it felt like, I mean, from watching it, first off, it was killing and it, and, uh, and getting to work with, I mean, are getting to kind of hire a lot of your favorite cats and your friends. And it, it definitely seems like, and, and not to mention, <laughs> you don't have to travel constantly. Well, you don't have to travel. And having spent all that time in New York, waking up in January and it was 61 degrees was really, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the way I grew up yeah. in New Orleans. Yeah. And we got a chance to play with a lot of the country boys, you know, country yeah. acts. Right. And man, that was a blast. Cause you know, they got real players, man. They ain't yeah, no yeah. joke. Yeah. Those guys come in and we had, th that was like the hang, you know, we did this 
we did a couple of songs with Willie Nelson. Yeah. Uh, we did some songs with Garth Brooks. And uh, yeah. he was like, man, my band's pissed that I'm not bringing them, but uh, we'll, they'll get over it. Right, <laughs> you know, right. we played Garth played with our band. I mean, we did something with Tommy Tune. I mean, it's like the variety yeah. of stuff that we were doing. It was like funny because some of the older guys from the, uh, the earlier iteration of The Tonight Show, they weren't fans of us. Right. You know, the New York guys coming in, the interlopers. So yeah. whoever was writing Tommy Tune's arrangement, it was, this is a really funny moment. They wrote the arrangement for Tommy Tune, and for Jeff, they gave him a, a xylophone part. Right. Uh, marimba part, marimba part to play. And I think the guy expected him to say, hey, man, I, I don't play marimbas. Jeff's like, yeah. great, this is my shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then one of the guys said, is he serious? I said, man, he was a multiple percussion major at Duquesne University. Right. He's like, this is great. Who's going to play drums? And those guys, yeah. well, I was going to play. Great, go over there. And he played yeah. this marimba part. It was just great to see him wow. with that kind of enthusiasm and get, get a chance to do something like that. Yeah, yeah. So we, we had good times. Yeah, yeah, it seems that way. Man, Tane is another guy who's just Ooh. one of my favorite players of all time. I know it's probably hard to tell, but uh, as far as touring, but you have any other, other projects you're excited about or working on at the moment? Nope. I just, you know, I practice every day. Well, almost yeah. every day. I didn't practice yeah. the day I wasn't feeling it. Plus, yeah. I, you know, I just, I, you know, hung out. But I practice, uh, I'm writing some music. I agreed to do this write this kind of suite of music based on Hungarian folk tunes. Oh, wow. And I listened to the Hungarian music for about eight months. And then I just started writing and uh, it's coming together good. And then after that, I have to write a piece for the Prism Saxophone Quartet. After that, I have to write some music for a documentary on the Tulsa riots in 21. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I get to do some, some, my rainy type stuff right on the heels of it. Right. I'm using it as a challenge because I'm streamlining it. Cause you know, documentaries aren't going to give you that kind of budget where you can just bring in. So it's yeah. the idea is to have like a five piece band with a string quartet right? and right. find a way to have the music have some kind of import. So cool. I'm working on that. But as far as gigs, you can't prepare. Yeah, yeah. Stuff, man. <laughs> Are you still teaching? Yeah. 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 You know, teaching, but I'm only, I'm only teaching six days a, a year. You know, right, three right, per right. semester, which is right. great for me. Right, right. And it's weird on Zoom. You know, you sit here from 10 to 4 and listen to guys play. You can't really tell. You lose all the nuance of the playing. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, and since since what I'm doing is not really data driven, it's like, I need to hear you. But for now, so we just talk about music. I send them tunes, you know, do all that stuff. Right, 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 right. Well, I hope I get to see the quartet when y'all come back out. And uh, man, I just appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, man. My man, this was great, bro. Yeah, Always good to see you, Crash. You too. I hope I get to see you in person uh, sooner than later. Yes, sir. All just right, just holler at me. Because yeah, if, you know, if, if you're where I am, you're going to hear from me. I, I, I will absolutely holler at you if I, when I'm down that way. All right, my brother. I appreciate you, man. Thanks so Talk much. Talk to you soon. I want to thank Brant from Marsalis for being on the show. So cool to connect with him. What an amazing guy. Um, before we go, we're going to play a song off of the Mo Better Blues soundtrack. And this is the title track, Mo Better Blues. And it's featuring his good friend and collaborator, Terrence Blanchard.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.